I'm Shauna Ritter. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and musicians and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Stanley Nelson. Stanley is an award-winning filmmaker who has well over 20 years' experience as a producer, director, and writer of documentary films. He's won Emmys, been awarded a MacArthur Genius Fellow, and is the co-founder and executive producer of Firelight Media and Firelight Films. Nelson's independently produced films include Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple, The Murder of Emmett Till, which won a Primetime Emmy and the Spencer Jury Prize at Sundance, and Wounded Knee, part of the landmark series on Native Americans called We Shall Remain. His most recent film, Freedom Riders, tells the powerful story of more than 400 black and white Americans who risked their lives to travel together on buses into the Deep South from May to December of 1961. Stanley, welcome to Profiles. Thank you so much. Um, Tell me, what brought you to film in the first place? You know, I was bouncing around college, and um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, to make a, a long story short, I took a film class and, and really liked it. And, you know, we, we watched films and talked about films. And, you know, I said, if this is all I have to do, this sounds great, you know. And then um, once we got into production, I realized that, that I really liked being in production so that when other students were, like, saying, you know, oh, no, we got to get up at 5 in the morning because we got to shoot at 6, to me it was like, yeah, you know, we, we got to get up and shoot. I can't wait. When we got into editing and, uh, you know, we'd be editing at 2 or 3 in the morning, I liked it, and, and, and I just really liked what I was doing, and, and so I just stuck with it. Why specifically documentary film? You know, I kind of fell into documentary film. I... um. When I was in, in college, I all I was interested in was fiction film. That's all I was interested in. That's all I knew. You know, I came from the generation where the only documentaries I saw were the documentaries that they brought into school, you know, about the sex life of a firefly or something, you know. And it was really boring, and they would show it on 16 millimeter, and the film would get caught in the projector and start burning. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was always a disaster whenever they tried to show a film. And even if the, we got through the film, it was boring. So I didn't know anything about it, and so my senior thesis was it was a fiction film. I, you know, I didn't know anything about docs. My film was a—it's kind of hard to explain—but it's a twelve-minute film about about a woman who who wakes up and can't remember who she is, and and she kind of goes to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist you know, gives her a lot of blather and then she goes to a priest and he just gives her a lot of blather, religious blather and then uh, she kind of realizes, she, she she sees a car accident and she runs over and there she is dead and then it's just, it was a, it was kind of a weird, weird film. But Identity, but, which runs through it, all your films. Yeah, I guess that's what it was about. <laughs> Thank you because I sure didn't know. Um, but anyway, that was, that was the film that I made, uh, you know, for my senior thesis. Um, but when I got out, um, I was looking for work, and I couldn't find, find work with a production company. And I just kind of stumbled into work with, with a guy named William Greaves, uh, Bill Greaves, who's kind of like the dean of African-American documentary filmmakers. And uh, he hired me to, to work with him, you know, for next to nothing. And that's how I got into working in documentary film. So... You've been doing this for decades now, yes. and um, the internet has been born since digital film has taken over. How has your work changed, 
and what's remained consistent about it? You know, I think in some ways the the work has remained consistent. I mean, I've got, hopefully I've gotten better as a filmmaker, you know, and you're able to do some things that, that were almost impossible to do, but not impossible really, but just harder to do. So um, to give you an example, um, I made a film called um, The Black Press Soldiers Without Swords, and the film starts out with um, kind of it pans around a newspaper, you know, and it has, you know, the different kind of chapters and, and you know, um, you know, edited by and then it pans down to, uh, you know, uh, film shot by and, you know, directed by and it does all that. Well, to do that in those days, what we had to do was we actually produced we, we produced a, 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 a facsimile of, of a newspaper. And then we had a a big uh, optical machine on an optical stand that went around it, you know, like, you know, physically. And that's how we had to shoot it. You know, now you could do that digitally and you just and, it, and it's just so much simpler. This was really complicated to do. You know, and when we did it, we finally did it. We finally saw it. It was like, wow, we've done it. It's incredible. So it's things are easier to do. But I, I don't think the aesthetic of what we what we do has changed, you know, drastically. I think we're still trying, we're still doing the same things, and in some ways, things have become more complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started out, it was sixteen millimeter film. That's what you shot on. Now, you know, are we going to shoot on high def tape? Are we going to shoot on mini DVs? Are we going to shoot a tapeless? Are we going to shoot, you know, what camera? You know, there's so many more choices and 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 so so much more complication technically sometimes today um but i think that still what you're trying to do is tell a story tell me a little bit about the different roles as a producer as a director as a writer um how do how do those roles differ on a on a documentary film well i think usually and this is usually uh, or traditionally on a documentary film the producer and the director were one person um, that you know was the, you, you were kind of the producer director. So sometimes you know in documentary film we talk about the producer where we and and we really mean you know producer director. So th- traditionally that was the same person. But I, if you had to differentiate, I think you know the quick way is to say that the producer is kind of responsible for the money, and the director is responsible for the artistic decision and the aesthetics of the film. Um, the writer is someone who you know is. Is, is writing the story, writing out the, the, the narration of the story. One of the really interesting things that, that's happened to me in the past year was freedom, for Freedom Riders, I was, I was nominated for a Writers Guild Award for, mm-hmm. for the writing of Freedom Riders, but there's no narration in the film. So, you know, when I first got, the, they told me about the nomination, I was like, are you sure you got the right guy since I didn't write a word? Um, but I think that they've come to look at writing for documentaries in a different way. You know, in, in writing is also the construction of the story. And Freedom Riders is a very complicated and, and, and intricately constructed story. So that's why I was nominated. I didn't win, but I was nominated. Well, congratulations on the nomination. <laughs> I have to say for two hours of the film, um, I was riveted. Oh. And um, I found it to be just an amazing Story, and I can't you always say that about documentaries that I find the story the most riveting piece. I'm interested in the information often, but this was actually a riveting story told with a narrative arc. I mean, it had all mm-hmm. the pieces of a of a complete tale that mm-hmm. kept me absolutely glued to the screen. How did you construct that story? I mean, I know it, I know it's history, so you didn't make it up, but how did you construct it? 
Well, I, I think it was very complicated for us in the beginning to construct the story. Um, hopefully, when you see the film, it, it doesn't look as complicated as it was. But, you know, in, in some ways, Freedom Riders is, is this linear story. I mean, they get on the bus on May 4th, 1961, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, you know. And so it has this linear arc to it. I think part of the the construction of the story, the problems for us was that it was kind of based on a 700-page book, you know, and so far, how do you cut this thing down and make it manageable? And what do you, what can you leave out and still have the integrity of the story hold? That was really uh, essential to us. And then the story gets complicated in that there's this other things going on so that, that in Washington, um, the Kennedys are kind of fighting another battle um, with the Freedom Riders. And, and a lot of the Freedom Riders on the ground, you know, who are on the buses, they don't know anything about this. So when we sh- first showed the film to some Freedom Riders, they're like, I didn't know anything about the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. All we knew was that, you know, we we're getting beat up and we we're getting locked up. You know, we we're getting beat up again. You know, it, it's telling this kind of multifaceted story and it, the Cold War gets brought in and Martin Luther King. And how do you how do you get away from the bus and then get back to the bus? How do you get away from the bus and get back to the bus? And a lot of that was was really it's it's just rhythm. You know, when we first the first time we showed the film at Sundance Film Festival. Um, they asked us that and about the you know how do you make some of these decisions? And it was really funny because my editor was there and, and he he I said you answer the question because nobody ever asks the editor any questions, so you answer it. And he said it was he had this funny answer. He said, "Well, me and Stanley listen to a lot of James Brown, and it's about rhythm." You know, and a lot of it, that's what it's about. You know, it's about rhythm. It's about, you know, when do you when do you need to break from the story? You know, when do you need to take it to the bridge, as James Brown says, and, and do something else? Well, you brought up two more questions that I really want to make sure to ask you, which is how do you preserve complexity while you're trying to bring out the essence of a story? How do you balance both of those things? Well, I, I think one of the things, things you have to do is, is try to make sure that, that your audience is, is with you, is going with you. And, and that's doubly complicated in making a film like Freedom Riders that has no narration. You know, so we really want to bring the audience along. You ha- The audience has to know where they are. With Freedom Riders, you know, they, we wanted people to know, like, what day it was, you know, how many days they had been on the bus, what city they were in, you know, to get a sense of how many riders were on the bus, to get all those pieces pieces in. And that's just, you know, part of what you have to do. And you have to figure out the tools to do that. So that in the film, you know, we use some text on the screen. We use chapter headings like day one, you know, day seven. They kind of give you that, that, that feeling. And we also give the date. So it's May 16th, mm-hmm. you know, day four, like that. Um, do you storyboard out a film beforehand? Does it change while you're doing it? Um, yeah, we don't storyboard because usually, um, but, but we do have a, have a, a, a script. Um, and that, you know, that the script we really use as we're developing the film and and all through the interviews. So, you know, I myself take the script with me, like if I'm on the road and I literally read, read it over every night before the before the shoots, because it helps me to, to give me kind of a blueprint for what I'm trying to do. So to give you an example, if I'm interviewing you about the Freedom Rides, it, it sounds crazy, but sometimes you're interviewing somebody and they start talking about something that's totally out of the subject, but it's really interesting. Hopefully your subjects will take you off on a, on a, on a related tangent 
And those moments are great, you know, so that in the in, in the moment where, where Bernard Lafayette sings in the film, I mean, that, I mean, you couldn't have scripted that, you know, you couldn't have scripted it. Um, and it's just a beautiful thing. And when, when, when it happened, we went with it and also asked other people to sing to kind of, uh, you know, amplify that. So, you know, it's almost like if you're working on a fiction film with actors, mm-hmm. well, you've got something down on the page. But but once you get your actors in there and they start acting, you know, they're going to give you something that's so much greater than that page. Um, and you got to go with it. And the other question I wanted to ask was the relationship between the director and the editor. So you're you have hundreds of hours of film, I'm guessing. And here's the editor that comes in and has to reduce that down to a watchable piece. How does the director and editor work together to do that? Well, in a film like Freedom Riders, um, you know, we're really lucky because we probably don't have 100 hours. We might have 30 interviews, 35. Maybe there's an hour on everybody. So maybe we have 40 hours. So it's manageable. You know, we're able to sit there and look at the footage together. That's the first step. We sit there and we look at the footage and we have a transcript of everything Mm -hmm. everybody says. And the first thing we do is go in, out, in. In, out, in, in, out, you know, we take out and, and put in and we try to, you know, cut down. And then the, the process is always a process of cutting down. You know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to cut down but not cut too much so that when we cut, we very rarely have to go back and say, oh, we shouldn't have cut that. Let's bring it back in. Once we cut something we're pretty sure that that's out. Now, that's not, again, it's obviously not 100% of the time, but I would say it's like 90, 95% of the time. Once something's cut, it's cut. Where are you most comfortable, behind a camera, in front of the camera? Behind the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Let me look from behind the camera. Yeah, I mean, I think think I'm most comfortable in the editing room. I mean, the editing room is is great because, you know, I'm not an on-camera person. I've made one personal film where I'm on camera, and that's that's that. So mostly I'm behind the camera. But when we're shooting, you know, it's 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 very tense, you know, because we're, you know, we're usually going down that road once. We don't have enough money or time to go back and re-interview somebody, you know. So everything has to work, you know. It has to look right. You know, the lighting has to look right. The background has to look right. It has to sound right. The sound has to be good, you know. And then I have to ask this person, you know, questions and and get through the material that we're trying to get through. But I also have to listen at the same time to try to, you know, if they say something, you know, I have to ask, well, why? You know what I mean? I mean, that's that's the biggest sin where where somebody says something and, and the interviewer doesn't ask them why or how did you feel? You know, and no, I don't understand what you mean. How did you feel? You know, tell, you know, tell me. So it's in some ways it's very, very tense on the set and and when you're doing interviews, but it can't be tense. So, you know, although I'm tense, I'm I'm giving this image of I'm just as happy and go lucky and and goofy as I can be, you know, because I don't want the person I'm interviewing to be tense. So it's this weird thing. And, I, you know, at the end of the day of interviews, we usually do try to do like three interviews a day. I'm burnt, you know. I'm burnt, you know, because it's a big thing at the end of the day. You know, you're out on location or, you know, you're in another city and the crew's like, you know, where do you want to go to eat? And I'm like, look, I don't care, you know, but just decide in the next five minutes or else I'm going to my room, you know, because I am burnt. I don't, you know, I've had it. What do you do to get yourself prepped for? Um, you know, I, I, what I do to prep is I read through the script, 
and then I write questions, and I have a lot of questions. So when I go into an interview, I might have, you know, five pages of questions on on uh, um, lined paper, you know, skipping a line for everyone. So I have a lot of questions. Usually I don't get to all of them. Uh, um, and usually, you know, I, I, I want to listen. So if one of the biggest sins, you know, is, is you, know, you just go through your questions. And you're not, you're not listening to what the person says. And they say something really great. You know, you don't follow it up, right. you know, because you're not listening to You're them. not present. Yeah, you're not present. You know, you have to. And it's just, that's, I think, is a great statement. That, that's what it's about. You have to be present, but you have to not be present, too. You have to be thinking of, okay, I can cut this here. And this is where I start. Okay, okay, and I'll end there. You know, even though the person's continuing to talk. And then you, but you still have to listen. So it's like you're functioning on, you know, not two levels, but probably three or four levels at the same time. Because you might have a monitor, and you're looking down, and you go, "Oh, that, that really looks ugly." You know, um, I got to ha- change the shot after this. I got to tell the cameraman to change that light. You know, um, I wonder if this sounds good. Oh, the mic looks. You know, it's it's all these things at the same time. So there's multiple conversations going on in your head yes. simultaneously. Yeah. You're the camera man, and you're the interviewer, and you're the editor and you're probably also the producer at the same yeah time. yeah but you want to try to you know let those things go i mean you want to try to have a, a camera person that you really trust and that you know you i work with them to help them set up the way it looks because i'm the one who's got to deal with it from then on in you know the you know the my camera person uh, who shot most of freedom riders he came to one screening you know that's all he's ever you know that he shot you know we shot 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 now you know that's it for him so it's really me i have to like it not him you know, and, and so it's really important. But after you set up the shot, you know, you kind of have to hopefully kind of some let most of that that go. You know, now, you know, th- he's getting paid to do this. He's a he's a professional. Mm-hmm. Let me let this go. The same with the sound, you know, um, unless you see something crazy, you know, like the mic is, you know, way up at the ceiling. And you know, then it's like, well, what are you doing? One thing I, I think I noticed reviewing your film, starting with Two Dollars and a Dream, the story of Madam C.J. Walker, just from our own Indianapolis, is that you used heavy nar- narration in that, but as, uh, you know, the, your films became more current, coming up to Emmett Till and then um, the Jonestown film and, of course, Freedom Riders, there's almost no narration in any of those. What made you move from a narrated film to a film that speaks for itself, so to speak, so to say? Um, I, I think, you know, part of it is just that, that I, I, I realized that I liked films w- without narration, if if at all possible. I mean, I, I have great respect for narration, you know. I mean, it's it's the, it's the hardest thing to do, and really good narration, you know, really good writing in a film is, is a real art, you know. It's like haiku, you know. It's its own thing, you know. It really is. Um, so I, I really, really like it. I, I also realized that, that the audience connects to films in a different way if you can do it with Without narration, especially with these historical films, because you don't see it that often. You know, we're used to this kind of narrator um, droning on and on. You know, um, and so if you can do it and tell the story and keep people into in the story without narration, then they connect in a different way because nobody's kind of telling them. You know, they're making the connections. They're like, oh. So that's what that means. And, oh, I understand, you know, where the Kennedys were. And I understand, you know, this. So so it's just a much deeper connection. And, and in some ways, you know, one of, one of the things about filmmaking for me is that, you know, you, you try to challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to make the same film over and over and over again. You know, I've made Two Dollars in a Dream. Um, I'm, you know, I, you know and, and so the, one of the challenges 
um, in filmmaking for me is is to kind of make a, make these films without narration. It just adds a extra layer of complexity, you know. And it, so it's like you know, in in diving, you know, when you add that extra layer, you can get a ten. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest is filmmaker Stanley Nelson. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Um, the way you talk reminds me about uh, of the notion of constructivism in education, where you set up an environment so people can construct their own meaning out of something and that they learn through that experience. And from what I'm understanding, the idea of removing narration from the film gives folks the opportunity to attach more directly to the material that you're showing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, to, gi- to give you an example, one of the examples... That, that I can use is in the murder of, of Emmett Till. There's a, a scene near the end where the uh, the guys who killed Emmett Till talk about um, the fact that uh, they confessed to the murder and, and they wrote a story for Look Magazine and they say, oh, yeah, we burnt his clothes. And we burnt, you know, and, and uh, he, he was wearing crepe sole shoes. Do you know how hard those are to burn? And and we knew that, that they said that, you know, it's in print, and we knew we were going to use that. Well, we found this woman who who um, went to school with Emmett Till. She was in his class. And, and I said, so, you know, what did the kids wear in, in your class? And she said, um, uh, the girls wore these dresses, you know, flowing dresses with the pleats, and the boys wore polyester pants. And I said, did they wear crepe sole shoes? And she said, and crepe sole shoes. So we cut out my question, and when you see the film, what you see is she says, you know, the boys wore polyester pants and crepe sole shoes. Then at the end where the guy says, you know, um, and he was wearing crepe sole shoes, you know how hard those were to burn. It just, you know, in the viewer's head, it makes this connection. We never mention it. You know, the, there is a narrator in that film, but the narrator never says anything about the, the two. You know, the narrator never says, and yes, he was wearing those crepe sole shoes. You know, it, it, we never do that. So the So the viewer says, oh, my God, you know. That's what she said, you know, 45 minutes ago. He was a schoolboy. And yeah. what goes through your head he is a, he, he was, was a schoolboy. School and this was Emmett Till because he, we know he wore those crepe sole shoes. And, and so you make those connections. That's just, you know, one little way that, that I think that can work. Um, one of the things I read someplace was that something that you're most proud of is the fact that your film helped to reopen the trial. Yeah, yeah, it reopened the case for 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 Emmett Till, and that was just you know incredible. That wasn't what we were trying to do at all. You know, we were just trying to make a film about what we thought was history. Emmett Till died in 1955, but once we got down to Mississippi, it was really funny. People down there were like, "Oh, you know, you should talk to so and so because you know I think he knows something about it," and we and and, and we would seek out so-and-so. We found this guy, and he said, you know, yeah, you know, my boss had me wash out his truck with the blood in it, you know, and I said to him, you know, whose blood is this? And they said, it's Emmett Till's blood. And, you know, I said, well, did did you testify at the trial? These guys he said, no, nobody called me. I, I you know, and I wasn't going to volunteer. He said, you know, the Klan had, had the whole courthouse surrounded, you know, and nobody was going to you know, volunteer to, to testify. No, but you know, um. So you know, we knew that 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 if we could find people, I mean, we were in, we were in Mississippi for a week, and we weren't even looking for them. You know, that that there were other people to be found. How do you 
balance hope and horror as as you do films like Freedom Riders, Emmett Till, Wounded Knee, which really show the deeply embedded racism in our history. How do you how do you do that and balance hope and purpose at the same time as you're revealing these truths? Well, you know, I, I think I look at it as a real gift to be able to make these films. You know, um, it, it's I, I am incredibly lucky, and you know, it's just really you know, a gift to be able to make these films. And, and so I don't, I, I'm revealing something that might that might be horrible, but, you know, I, it's a privilege to be able to do it. I, I know that might sound weird, but, but you know, I, that's that's how, how I feel about it. I, I don't feel like, you know, oh, this is horrible for me to do this. I, I'm really um, lucky to be able to tell these stories. There's a notion that I've heard a lot of, especially um, Latino poets talk about, which is the notion of bearing witness, you know mm-hmm. that that it's art. It's an artist's job to bear witness and reflect mm-hmm. back what's happened in history in order to be able to change the future. So, do you think consciously about that as you're making a film? And if you do, how do you balance the truth of the situation with the purpose of creating a film that's going to m- create movement towards social justice? Um, again, I, I think I'm very gifted to be able to tell these stories. Um, I, you know, I, I think that that part of what I, I I've been able to do is bear witness um, to history. But again, I, I it seems like it's it's this um, there's this extra weight there for, for, for me. You know, I mean, I feel and, and I think it's something that drives me and it drives our team uh, to create what we've been able to create. You know, we have been granted the opportunity to tell the story of Emmett Till, to tell the story of the Freedom Riders. You know, we've been given resources to do that. And we look at it like there's nobody better to tell this story. And that, you know, Emmett Till, you know, and and Mamie Till are sitting up there, you know, wherever they are looking at us and saying, you better tell this story right because I'm waiting for you, you know, when you come. And so we're really trying to tell this story um, to the best of our ability and, and, and and to convey the emotion of the story to the best of our ability. In doing that, part of it is to be entertaining. You know, we are not trying to preach to the choir. We know that we are trying to reach the largest uh, number of people that we possibly can, and I mean reach them emotionally. That's the only way that this, that, that Emmett Till story, the Freedom Rider story, is meaningful. You know, I could recite the facts, but you don't care. You know, nobody would care. What we're trying to do is, is make something that, you know, as you're clicking around your dial, you choose to watch Freedom Riders over American Idol or whatever because, you know, they are on at the same time and you've got to make a choice. Have you found some things that really form those connects for people that you look to make sure shine out of your films? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not sure if there's if there's one connector. You know, I think it, it's character. I think that we want to to create character in the film. You know, um, um, in some films we really want to do that. So you know, somebody comes on and you're like, okay, this is the funny one. Okay, this is the the serious one. Okay, this is you know, and, and we try to try to do that. In other films, like in some ways, the Freedom Freedom Riders and, and Jonestown, we were trying to create this kind of chorus. Of people, you know, the, the, this this chorus of voices, to where you know the, the, there's so many of them, and, and and they're almost interchangeable that 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 you have to believe it, because they're speaking. You know, there's there's a bunch of people speaking in one voice. 
Um, how different was it for you to make a film like Wounded Knee or the films that you've made about Puerto Rico, which are not your heritage or African-American, and many of your films explore and delve deeply into um, issues of race for African-Americans and historical issues for African-Americans. How how did you um, learn enough and become part of understanding the history of Wounded Knee or of the uh, struggle for independence in Puerto Rico? I think for us, um, for me personally, um, you know, it's funny when, when when American Experience approached me about doing Wounded Knee, you know, I think my, my, my first statement to them was, why me? You know, I mean, you know, because I really believe that people need to tell their own history. You know, you know, why not a Native American filmmaker? And And their feeling was that for the series, they had hired uh, a couple of Native American filmmakers, but there weren't enough Native American filmmakers to you know of prominence to to make this show, and 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 I I knew from their answer that it was going to be me or somebody else that they that they, I I couldn't force them to go out and find Native American filmmakers, and so then they they, they put on they gave me an, uh, a Native American associate producer, which who then became the co-producer of the film with me, and so you know she, uh, Juliana Branham is her name, and she had a great influence on on the story and the, and the way the story story went. Um, we also had a, a lot of advisors, and we did a lot of research, you know, before we started the project. Um, so I think that was that was my way of kind of dealing with with that with that story. Um, you know, Puerto Rico, I write to the side is a little different because that was early on in my career. I don't know if I was so interested, you know, in, in who had the right or should I have the right. I was so glad to be able to make a film, you know, I, you know what I mean? I, I just was like, yeah, you know, um, but actually the, the, uh, I was the producer of that film and the director was, was, was Puerto Rican. Um, how do you go about raising money for film or, you know, do you get it? You've, you've talked about being approached by PBS to do a number of films for films that you've, uh, started out on your own. How do you go about Recruiting cash, uh, you know that would. I wish I had. <laughs> hard a, I wish I had the easy answer. I mean, I think every film is different. Um, you know, I think you know um, what I've done traditionally is is to get the idea down on paper. Um, most people in documentary film deal with paper. You know, some don't. I mean, I, you know, HBO is is a little bit different from from other people. But you know, traditionally, PBS and other other places deal with paper. You know, they want they want to see the idea written out, and so that's kind of the first thing the thing that we do is try to get the idea down on paper, and then you know we'll spend a little uh, of our own time and money writing a proposal. So to give you an example, when we did the film uh, Marcus Garvey, look for me in the whirlwind. Um, I was work. I was working with my wife. I worked with my wife for years until she went out and found a real job. Uh, recently, hopefully she'll come back. But we, uh, she, um, not to me, but to the company. When uh, <laughs> um, we were working uh, on Marcus Garvey, look for me in the whirlwind. What we did, and she's a great writer, and so we made a, a great team. What we did was we went we went to the library and got you know four or five books on Marcus Garvey out, and we basically read the table of contents, the first chapter and the last chapter. You know, I think that one of the mistakes people make, filmmakers make, is is they get too immersed in the subject. Mm -hmm. You know, and what I always tell students, you know, when I speak to students, is that all you have to know is more than whoever you're turning the proposal into. <laughs> you know, what I mean, you don't have, and it sometimes can be very confusing if you know, if you read, you know, all six books about Marcus Garvey, and you know, some people think he think he was a scoundrel, and some people think he was a hero, and the ins and outs, and 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 people give you different accounts of the same incident. You know, I mean, you could get all 
into all that once you're making the film and once you have the money. But to but to write a proposal, um, again, I think all you have to do is know more than whoever you're sending that proposal to. Do you fall in love with your subject matter when you're? Mm, I fall in love with the subject matter, not my subjects. Gotcha. That's why I said subject matter. Yeah, I didn't yeah. say subject. Yeah. So why Freedom Writers? Why now in 2011? Or obviously you started it before this. But. Well, Freedom Writers, um, it's the 50th anniversary in 2011. Right. So this is the 50th anniversary of Freedom Writers. May 4th will be the 50th anniversary of the first day of the Freedom Rides. Um, so that's why now. I was approached with, with this film for, by American Experience who said they had um, – Option this book, uh, Freedom Riders by Ray Arsenault, a 700 page book. <laughs> they had, they had uh, optioned this book, and would I be interested in taking a look, maybe, you know, to, to produce and direct it? And, you know, and they would send it to me, and, and I just said yes. I just said, don't, you know, send it to me, but don't even think about it. Don't call anybody else. Let's go. I, I, I want to do this story. I think we should do it, you know. Um, now, I, I think one of the reasons why I was so interested was because I think it was the the chance to take one piece of the civil rights movement and really just dissect it and really look at it, you know, in minute detail and and and, and really focus on it. Because I feel that that one of the things that Eyes on the Prize did, you know, was that it was such a great series that it made us think that we know everything about the civil rights movement. And it made us think, you know, so it told these stories, these little stories, like 20-minute stories. And and I think that there's still the opportunity to tell a lot more. So I think in some ways, you know, the greatness of Eyes on the Prize kind of put the civil rights movement in this box, you know, and and people were able to say, oh, I, I already know about that. What did you learn making Freedom Riders? that you didn't know before about the civil rights movement? I didn't know any of it. I realized <laughs> when, I got the, when I got the book and started reading it and learning, I think that what I learned and what we try to show is that, you know, the civil rights movement is, was really made up of common everyday people, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't and it was Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and these great leaders that we know all about, but, you know, they wouldn't have been anything without the people behind them who really you know, and truly risked their lives. And especially, you know, in the Freedom Riders story, because it was the beginning of the civil rights movement. And there was a real feeling by the white racist South that they could stop this thing just by being violent. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're really, if we're violent enough and we beat these people enough and kill them, this whole thing will end right here. You know, because it's ended before. You know, we've lynched people before and, and nothing's happened. And we'll do the same thing now. Um, when you were interviewing this, the writers themselves, they they seemed um, to tell their stories with so much passion still and with very little regret. Did you mm-hmm. find that that was that the greatest moment of their lives? Did they think or? I think that that one of the things that that happens in the film that makes the film really work is for so many people, they have not had the chance to tell the story before in this way. Um, They had not been approached to, you know, this is public TV, this show is going to be seen by millions, and they have a chance to tell their story, you know. And and so I think they were ready, you know. They were like, okay, I got a story to tell you, let me tell it. Um, And and so the interviews um, are very, very passionate, you know, um, and, and very, very honest, you know, I think that, you know, no, you know, nobody might have asked uh, Genevieve uh, Houghton, you know, were you scared? 
mm-hmm. you know, after the beatings, did you still want to continue? And she gives one of the most amazing, honest answers where she says, you know, no, <laughs> you know, I want I, I, I like being alive. You know, I realized that I liked living and that, you know, I, I didn't want to really do this. I was fine with going home. Right. I'm going to depart a little bit from Freedom Riders sure. because I just watched for the first time A Place of Our Own, um, which I found to be a really moving film. You made me cry because of your very close relationship talking with your parents, both mm-hmm. your mom who had passed and um, your dad. Tell me a little bit about making that film, which is a real departure for you, I think, from right. your other films. Right. Well, uh, A Place of Our Own it started out as the story. We wanted to do a story about black resorts, uh, African-American resorts, as a way of looking at the middle class. That's something that's that's kind of driven me you know, throughout my film career because I started out uh, you know, making films um, because I, I didn't see myself in the films that were being made in the 60s and the 70s, you know, the kind of black exploitation, pimp and prostitute films. You know, my father's a dentist. My mother was, was a librarian, you know, and, and that's how I grew up. And I, and I thought, you know, well, where's the black middle class? You know, there, there is a black middle class. What about that? Um, and so we had started out trying to do a film about black resorts, and we had four or five different resorts, you know, American Beach in Florida, Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, uh, Sag Harbor. Um, I forgot the other. But anyway, that, that was the idea. We couldn't raise the money to do that. And so um, we did raise some money. So um, we decided to do the film about Martha's Vineyard in Mass, and where, where I grew up, where I grew up going, uh, you know, and in that community. One, because, you know, my parents had a house there, so and, and there was a place I could stay, you know, and, and we could put the crew up and, and, and we could do it for, for relatively cheaply. So it started out to be a film kind of about Martha's Vineyard. Then my mother passed away right before in in January. We were going to film that summer. So it became a film... Uh, kind of about 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 my mother and her love for this place, and also the the family kind of disintegrating, or what happens to a family when the matriarch dies, who's kind of knitted this 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 family unit together. We tried to make that film, and we couldn't make that film, and and, and you know we edited and edited and edited, and we couldn't get that film made. It just didn't, it wasn't working, and we finally had to shut down production. And uh, we got a new editor, and the, and the new editor came in, and after, and she looked at the material for a week or so, and she said, you know, I, I think that this film really should is about you and your father. It shouldn't be about you. It's about you and your father. And I said, you're out of your mind. You know, we shot this whole film about about, about kind of about my mother with people talking about her, and she said, yeah, but they're talking about this person who, who's passed. But but your father is there, and and there's this thing that's happening. And she said, "Let me put the footage of you and your father and your father all that footage together, and let's look at it." And she was right. And so that's what the film kind of became. Uh, the central piece of the film is about my relation to my father, and my father kind of coming back uh, to Martha's Vineyard after a long time after my mother passes, um, and and it became uh, something very different. Um, it became a very 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 personal film. And I was driven there by um, the three women who who were working on the film, the editor, my wife as a writer, and the associate producer. Um, And and they kind of drove me to where the film, what the film became. They kept saying, you know, if it's going to be this, then you have to talk about it. It has to be personal, you know. And I think that what we are able to get at 
is a bunch of things. You know, there's the history of the black community on Martha's Vineyard. There's the my family history, my relationship to my father. There's the history of myself and my family growing up middle class and and, and kind of integrating schools and that kind of thing. Um, And and there's also, you know, uh, the whole idea of what it means to be black and middle class in in this country. And And I think that... One thing that the film holds is there's things in that film that that you've never seen, you know, before or since, you know, in, in film. I mean, we don't talk about the black middle class. We don't talk about, you know, the, there's a great thing where me and my wife are talking about the armor that that a, that a black middle class person or a black person has to put on every day. Because if you're black and middle class, 95 percent of the time, your time during your work day is spent with white people. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to do to make them feel comfortable? Who do you have to become? What do you have to do to make those white people feel comfortable? Because if they don't feel comfortable, then you cannot be successful. They have to be comfortable with you. How do you make them feel comfortable but still hold on to yourself, still hold on to your integrity? Um, you know, we talk about those kind of things that I think um, we don't see very often on TV. Right. Your father in the film made the statement, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, racism in America has affected every step I've ever taken in my life. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that statement now? Do you feel like it, does that hold true for you at this point? No, I, I don't think it affects every step I take. I, th- I think it affects a lot of steps I take. I think sometimes it affects more steps than, than I want it to, <laughs> you know, to, I think it affects more steps than I want it to affect. Um, I think one of the things that one of the great statements about racism that, that I always try to remember is 95% of the time, you know, we don't know what's racism or what's not. You know, we don't know, you know, why somebody, you know, gives us a frown, you know, when we go to get coffee. We don't know why, some, why you know, a cab won't pick us up in New York. You know, we don't know why, you know, you know, my father's pet peeve, you know, a restaurant, they may sit us by the kitchen. You know, we don't know. I mean, that might be the only seat they have. The guy at the restaurant, he may just have had a bad day. You know, the cab may not see or he's going, you know, whatever. So we don't know. But, but so what happens so often is that we either we either become Pollyanna and say none of this is, you know, everything's great. You know, none of that, none of this, you know, or we say, you know, this is all racism, you know. You know, so, you know, you go to get some coffee and the guy gives you the coffee, gives you that look, you know, and anybody who's black who's listening knows what I'm talking about, gives you that look. And and all of a sudden your day is ruined. You're pissed, you know, but maybe the guy broke up with his girlfriend, you know, you know, or maybe he just has a headache. And that's why he's giving you that look. You know, you just never know. And and so it's this real balancing act. How do you how do you not, you know, live in, in this kind of dream world? where there is no racism, but also how do you live a life so that racism doesn't affect every move you make? Because if you you do, then you're giving yourself over. You know, you've now lost yourself to something that that you have to figure out how to to swim through. Mm -hmm. You talked about the invisibility to some extent of being black and middle class. How does having um, both of those aspects in your identity affect the way that you work on issues of race and equity and social justice as a filmmaker? I'm not sure if it does. You know, I mean, I, I think that I, you know, I, I you know, I'm a black person. I, I think that that's, you know, what, what, you know, where, where I come off. I'm a black person. I'm American. And, you know, this is what I do. I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I had to, 
had to come to grips with in making this film a place of our own was that, you know, I, you know, I'm black and middle class, you know, I mean, that's why I was raised, you know, and I can't tell you, you know, how, how weird and difficult in some ways it was to, to you know, it, it, it's like a statement of, uh, uh, of, of purpose or something when I say my father was a dentist and my mother was a librarian. I mean, it's become a little looser in the last few years, I think, part, you know, but we made this film in 2001 to 2003 mm-hmm. in, in the era of gangster rap and before Obama, you know, and so and 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 so there was no, you know, and, you know, you had to keep it real. You know what I mean? You know, it was like everybody had to, you had to come from the ghettoist of the ghetto. You know, I'm more ghetto than you. And that's how it was. We had a strange conversation one time in the edit room. It was me, the associate producer and the editor. And, you know, I was talking about being middle class. And they were like, no, well, we're not middle class. No, nah, we, you know, we, you know we're, we're keeping it real. And I was like, well, wait a minute. The editor was about to break in from one apartment, break the wall down so he could take over another apartment so he and his wife could live in two apartments with their kids. The associate producer's father is a doctor with a swimming pool, you know, upstate New York on the Hudson. You know, she grew up going to private schools. I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? But nobody, no black person, you know, wanted to admit or, or still has a hard time admitting that they are middle class. And we talk about that in the film. I mean, we, we interviewed Skip mm-hmm. Gates, who who has has a great piece where he says, you know, I mean, what is that? You know, nobody, no other, no nobody else in the world is trying to go to the lowest common denominator, you know, and saying, you know, you know, I, I'm 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 the poorest Arab that ever there ever was, or I'm the poorest Jew that ever that ever lived. You know, I come from the worst neighborhood, so I'm, you know, it's like, what is that about? And so I think, um, you know, in some ways, you know, I had to kind of cross this line and be able to proudly say, you know, I'm black and middle class. Thank you. I wanted to return back to when you come to something like Freedom Riders and you are making a film with so much material. How do you how do you determine what you want people to walk away with from the film? Um, Because I I know when I saw it, I walked away with a sense, one, of hope and responsibility that these were real people, just like you said, that did this. Mm -hmm. And then also of transformation, that people can transform other people, that the Kennedys were totally transformed by watching the – I don't know about totally, but they were – certainly their point of view was transformed, that they were not aware of issues uh, in the South before they had to confront the Freedom Riders. So how do you distill what you want people to walk away with? That's an interesting question, you know, because I think that honestly when I'm making films, I don't think about that that much, about what I want people to walk away with. What I want people to walk away with is to have the same experience that, that, that I've had with the story. You know, is for the story to resonate with people in the same way that it resonates with me, is to tell the story honestly by telling the story honestly, I think that people will – it will resonate with people in the same way. Um, or at least they're getting the same emotional information that I'm getting. And then they can let it resonate however, you know, their DNA wants it to resonate. But I think that that's what, 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 what I'm trying to do. So I'm not thinking so much as, you know, like the people talk about takeaways and stuff like that. I'm not really thinking about that so much as I am, you know, trying to just tell the story and, and give people the same kind of emotional uh, uh, information that I have. Um, what are some, you talk about yourself as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite stories from literature? I don't know. 
<laughs> That's a good yeah, honest answer. It's, it's, it's hard for me to kind of talk about. You Notice know, I didn't say the favorite. I just yeah, said some of yeah, the Yeah, it's really hard for me to kind of sometimes for me to kind of switch directions and think about in, in literature what it what it is that that I really like. You know, I it, it I, I read a lot. You know, and so I just mm-hmm. kind of read. You know, and I and and you know I just kind of try to keep keep reading and seeing the way stories are told and and just uh, you know in, in some ways I kind of don't process it. I just read it. You know. <laughs> Let it in. I don't that makes any sense. Um, how about in terms of films? Some of your favorite films that you go back to time and time again. You know, I, I'm not sure if I do. You know, I, I I'm not sure if I do. I, I, I uh, yeah, as I said, I was really interested in fiction films. You know, um, and I still am. You know, I probably watch a lot more fiction. I have a hard time not being competitive with documentary films. You know, you know, and docu- I see other docs. I get kind of you know ah, I could do better. So what is a competitive whatever. documentary? What do you go after as a competitor yeah, in documentary? I try not film? to watch other docs because I, <laughs> I, I I find myself in in a really nasty space sometimes, you know, you know, judging the films and, you know, in a way that I shouldn't and not being able to sit back and enjoy it. I, 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 you know, and I think about weird stuff like I wonder how much money they had to make this or, you know, where they, where did they get their money or, you know, stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to get away from it. I'm trying to be able to just sit, sit back and watch, but sometimes I, I, I can't, you know, it, it's almost like work sometimes watching docs for me. Um, what stories do you want to make? That you um, haven't told yet. We're working on, on raising money to do a film about the Black Panther Party, which I'm, which I, I am uh, really uh, enthusiastic about. It's a film that I really want to make. It, it'd be kind of like the um, the rise and fall of the Black Panther Party. There have been films that talk about this piece of the Panther Party mm-hmm. and this piece of the Panther Party, but we really want to try to do is talk about the the totality of that experience, which was you know a very short time that the Panther Party was was kind of at its at its height. So I want to do that. We're also working on a, on a film, a uh, two-hour thing on, on um, historic black colleges and universities, looking at this, this uh, um, kind of American history through uh, the history of, of, of historic black colleges and universities, looking at, at these things that, that in some ways put themselves, uh, not put themselves out of business, but, you know, they, they, they really fought to train people who then fought to get integration that then... Um, colleges became integrated and um, by and large, uh, you know, um, the great professors and the great students now chose choose not to go to HBCUs. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting story. Um, and then we're working on a, a, a film about um, the Atlantic slave trade and the business of, 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 of the trade. And that's a, a four part series that will uh, hopefully we won't be done for four, four or five years. But that's a, a huge piece. But we're also right now in production for a film about Jesse Owens and the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. We're actually uh, – How do you keep all these things going at one time? Uh, I don't know. Do you sleep? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just, I mean, it, you know, it, it, par- partially what, what's happening for, for me at this moment in my life is, you know, I've been given this great opportunity. You know, I spent a lot of years as a struggling filmmaker. And so that, you know, I've been given this great opportunity where, um, you know, our, our last few films have been very successful. So we're trying to, you know, use that um, so that the film we're working on, Jesse Owens, um, the woman who co-produced uh, Freedom Riders is directing that. She's actually in Berlin right now shooting that. And it's her first sh- shot at, at directing this this kind of big film. And American Experience approached us with the idea. 
and with that I with, with, and and said you know she could direct if if, if Stanley you'll kind of produce and oversee it because you know we, we trust uh, we trust you we made a bunch of films with you um, and this would be an opportunity for her to kind of get out there and do that so you know what am I going to say you know no you know it's it's it's, it's incredible opportunity and and so we're trying to you know use whatever kind of capital we we have um, to go forward and and to push some other people forward. What have I not asked you that I should have asked you that you want people to know about you or about your company or about your films? Um, well, I'd love people to know about the producer lab that, that, that we're running, which is just an incredible thing that, that we're doing now through Firelight Media. We're working with um, 15 to 20 uh, producers of color uh, all over the country to help them uh, get their films done and out there. And these are, are not students. These are working professionals. They all, one of the, the, the prerequisites for being in the producer lab is that you have some kind of money attached to your film. So that ranges from people who have $15,000 to people who have $400,000. And we provide them mentorship that, that we pay for. They never pay us anything. We provide mentorship um, uh, advice, whatever we can. We do workshops. Um, we just did a two-day workshop in, in New York on audience engagement and outreach for two days. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of things. We're working with great, incredible producers. Um, probably eight of the 15 or 16 are fully funded. Um, three of our producers are in the last round for full funding at ITVS. Mm-hmm. A couple of our films have, have, been, have, made, have been done and made it and are out there. So it's been an, an incredible incredible ride with the producer lab what's the essence of audience engagement um you know audience engagement is is is, is what probably in, in in the commercial world they call publicity but it's a, it's 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 a little bit more than that you know it, it's how do you how do you find an audience for your film how do you in, 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 I want to say the, the essence of it. I mean, what, what you really want to try to do is, is have your audience do something. You know, that, that, that would be if you could take it to its height. You know, you would, you would not only bring an audience in there, but you'd have your audience, you know, um, you know do something to further um, uh, the ideas of the film. But it's really to, to, to get, you know, eyes on your film. You know, and, and now we're talking about, you know, pre-broadcast, broadcast, and pro- post-broadcast to may, have your film live in all those areas. And, and that's really essential um, for documentary films. Tell us why people should tune into Freedom Riders when it airs on WTIU. Because it's a great film. It's 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 the best film I, I've I've made. It, it really is um, a very different story than, than people uh, you know who say, "Oh, I, I've heard the story of Freedom Riders." They don't know the story. It's an incredibly intricate story, uh, functioning on many levels. You know, it's about not only the Freedom Riders, but about the Kennedys, about Martin Luther King, about the the Cold War, and also about the beginning, the very very beginnings of the National Civil Rights Movement. Um, I think they'll be moved. It's a it's a film that really moves people of all ages and all races. I'd say also it's a film about what a few individual people can do to make a tremendous difference. Right. And I think that's one of the things that, that really resonates and especially resonates right now. Thank you. Stanley Nelson, thank you for being on Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter. Thank you for listening. Don't need no baggage, you 
The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.